Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, cyberspace has been described as the most contested domain. So how will the new National Cyber Force defend the UK? We speak to the Head of Strategic Command. But we're operating in cyberspace constantly and persistently because this isn't like a, a military capability that you keep in reserve. You have to be engaged forward all the time to understand and to be able to deter the threat. We have a report on the resignation of the Defence Minister Johnny Mercer and questions over the Overseas Operations Bill. And as Russian troops gather on the borders of Ukraine, a former British ambassador to Moscow speaks to SITREP about President Putin's State of the Nation speech. And how a military charity is helping frontline healthcare workers deal with the stress of tackling COVID. They'd have that adrenaline rush of going in to work, anxiety. So we looked at the emotional resilience that work that veterans have done. News, discussions and analysis. This is SITREP. But first, we know from the government's integrated review that cyber is one of the biggest priorities for defence. The new National Cyber Force was set up to conduct targeted offensive cyber operations and draws together personnel from both defence and the intelligence agencies under one unified command for the first time. So what is the scale of the threat? Tim Stevens is head of the Cybersecurity Research Group at King's College London and is one of the editors of a report on the cyber threats facing NATO. In general terms, I think NATO has really, over the last three to four years, become exceptionally concerned um, about the threat from Russia and to a lesser extent from China and some of the other the usual suspects, if you will. But certainly looking eastwards towards Russia and in my own particular field of cybersecurity, it's become very apparent that Russia is attempting to subvert not only the, the operations of NATO in a military or, or organisational sense, but also the civilian infrastructures uh, including the electoral infrastructures uh, in the members of, of the alliance itself. So I think it sees a very live, uh, immediate and persistent cyber threat to, the, to NATO as an organisation and to its member states. Now, you've got a report out this week on the National Cyber Force. What does it conclude? The question that our report um, through the King's Policy Institute asks is, OK, so we have this National Cyber Force. It's going to be set up. It's going to come up to a, a roughly a 3,000 person um, operating capacity. Well, what's it going to do? What's it for? What are the questions that it answers? And so we, we're trying in, in the report to think through what its mission should be. And we're told that it's going to be offensive cyber. But what sort of offensive cyber? Does this mean just you know counter-criminal activity, counter-espionage? Or does it mean going out and playing in uh, civilian infrastructures in, in foreign countries? Um, so just trying to think about what's it for? Uh, how are we going to ensure that it abides by the rules of the road? By which I mean things like international law and international norms that have been developed at the United Nations and elsewhere. And really trying to ask the government to hold it to account and to hold itself to account as we develop what it clearly thinks is going to be a really, really important uh, tool in its toolbox in the 21st century. Crucially, from our perspective, it's asking, you you know, the National Cyber Force can only do so much. It cannot do everything and it can't, cannot do everything equally well. So we have to prioritise in a time of constrained resources about what it's actually going to do and why. 
That was Tim Stevens from King's College London. Well, Kieran Martin is the former head of the National Cyber Security Centre, which was set up to monitor and respond to cyber security incidents. He's now teaching at Oxford University, and he wrote the foreword to the report on the National Cyber Force. I asked him about the kind of threats the National Cyber Security Centre faced when he was leading it. I think whilst the overwhelming majority of attacks that British citizens encounter are criminal. The ones at the top end of the scale that meet the threshold for the NCSC's involvement tended to be disproportionately hostile states. And in my day, it was pretty much the big four of uh, Russia, China, Iran and North Korea, with a few others every now and then. And do you welcome the setting up of the National Cyber Force, which we're told has an offensive capability? Yeah, well, absolutely. And there's been an offensive capability under development for some time. And it depends how you define it. But you could argue that GCHQ have been authorised to do it and carrying it out since the late uh, 90s. Clearly, uh, cyber capabilities are becoming um, more important in conflict. So I can understand why the Defence Review talks about um, supporting military capabilities with uh, cyber uh, capabilities. And so in some respects, uh, the National Cyber Force is essentially an organizational consolidation of things that were already happening. I think the shift towards a greater emphasis on offensive cyber does pose some questions. So whilst I don't uh, disagree with the decision to set it up and there's much to welcome about it, I do think there's a lot of really interesting and important topics to debate to make sure we get our posture in cyberspace right. What kind of subjects do you think need to be addressed? Cyberspace is interesting because in many regards uh, it hasn't uh, hasn't changed human nature, so bad people still act in bad ways and good people still act in in good ways. But it is the first completely artificially uh, human-created domain, and it is not just a domain of military operations, it's it's an environment, it's what sustained us through the pandemic, it's what you and I are interacting over now. And offensive cyber um, involves exploiting the weaknesses of the internet for the purpose of your own national security and that's absolutely necessary in certain circumstances um, but it can't be completely detached from the need to secure the internet for our own purposes so you, you and I can buy things safely so we can exchange messages uh, safely and so forth and getting that posture absolutely right needs more debate and I think one of the things we in the West in the sort of rich digitized democratic rule of law countries need to be careful about is that by on balance in my view others may disagree but on balance in my view we have more to gain net from having a safer internet than we do by focusing uh, mostly on exploiting the weaknesses of others. So it's about getting that balance right. And what safeguards do you think there should be in the monitoring response to cyber attacks? Well, first of all, I think offensive cyber and the National Cyber Force do have a really important part to play in, in the wider national security effort, because so much of offensive cyber is actually about countering terrorism, supporting military operations, countering serious crime, uh, uh, for uh, example. It also has an important role to play um, in counter cyber um, uh, operations um, as well. But you mentioned um, safeguards. Firstly, I do think we need to learn the lessons of the past. This is a difficult and sensitive area. And whilst we cannot disclose the the details of the operations or even the capabilities, we can have the sort of discussion safely that we're having now, the debate about posture. And so I think that the the transparent debate about principles in cyberspace is actually a good one to have in terms of oversight. Then I think we need to think about things like how do we make sure the the cyber capabilities are guarded safely because people try and steal them all the time. And that's happened to our American friends in the past with damaging uh, consequences. And we need to think about law and ethics what is 
permissible in wartime, what is permissible in the so-called grey zone and so forth. I think the government by and large is getting the legal and ethical oversight framework right. I'm not sure it's talking about it enough. There's no reason why it can't engage more openly in this debate. And I think history shows that when you um, apply secrecy unnecessarily to something, people get very suspicious, even if it's groundless, if they knew the actual facts. That was Kieran Martin there. Well, earlier I spoke to General Sir Patrick Sanders, Head of Strategic Command, which leads in the cyber domain for defence. I started by asking him why he thought the National Cyber Force was needed. We're living in uh, an extraordinary period of the information revolution, and that's bringing benefits to us, whether those are personal, whether they're societal, whether economic. I mean, really global benefits around education, innovation, and the the internet, cyberspace, has been a lifeline for lots of us throughout the pandemic. So we want cyberspace to be a common good, uh, both for the UK but globally. But the utopian aspects that cyberspace represent also have some dystopian elements to them as well. And our reliance on cyberspace makes us vulnerable. It makes us vulnerable to criminals, to terrorists, to hostile states, to corporations. And the sort of threats that we face are everything from the theft of secrets and intellectual property to damage the economy, people sowing discord. So we live in this idea of it is much a disinformation age as is uh, an information age. And that causes people to change their perceptions and their behavior. It can affect democratic processes. We've seen radicalization through terrorist movements. And of course, it can confer advantage uh, in war and it can cause. Uh, crippling damage to our to our national infrastructure. So against that backdrop, we want cyberspace to be a common good. We want to establish ourselves as a responsible cyber power, but we need to be able to defend ourselves. And we defend ourselves both through the National Cyber Security Centre, and I know you've spoken to Kieran Martin already, and our own uh, operations centre down in Caution, but we also need to be able to contest and to defend ourselves actively in cyberspace to deter and to impose costs on our adversaries. And that's really where the National Cyber Force, as the partner to the NCSC and what we do in caution, comes in. And where do the most serious threats come from in terms of state actors? I mean, the the four that tend to be cited as the most active and the most hostile are China, Iran, North Korea and Russia. And we see different facets, different capabilities, different threats emerging from those. But most recently, you've clearly seen uh, the Russians cited as being responsible for the solar winds attack. Um, there are certainly uh, linkages between China and what's been going on with Microsoft Exchange. And then you've seen things like WannaCry and NotPetya that have come out as well. We've heard questions about what the term offensive cyber actually means in practice. Can you give us some examples? Well, when we think about uh, offensive cyber, what we're really talking about is the deliberate manipulation of computer systems and data to achieve real-world objectives and real-world outcomes. Now, that can be physical, where we connect to a piece of technology or machinery. So that can be a weapon system in defense, uh, but it can also be um, a a mobile phone or uh, an operating system. The more interesting, I think, is around where we connect cognitively. So that's where uh, cyberspace influences the way we think. It influences our behavior. You particularly see that with mobile phones and radios and so on. So offensive cyber is that ability to change those, to manipulate uh, systems and data. And if you want a real world example of how we uh, have done this, uh, I tend to refer back to what we did to counter Daesh in, in, in Mosul. 
uh, and, the, and the battles around Raqqa. And what we found there was that the Daesh Islamic State were exploiting cyberspace to, uh, to recruit, to propagate a hateful ideology, to control their fighters, to exercise command and control, and to maintain their own morale. And that was a strength. It was a very novel way of, of executing a terrorist campaign. And we wanted to turn that strength into a weakness. So we began to attack their servers, to close them down in cyberspace, but also to disrupt their communications with their fighters and to fundamentally undermine their cohesion and their morale. And to do that in combination with physical maneuver in the air, in the ground, with Iraqi security forces, and the result you saw play out, which was very effective. How frequently is the cyber force having to take offensive action to defend UK military assets? Uh, We do it every day. So we are involved in, uh, in cyber operations um, uh, on a daily basis. That can range from against um, serious and organized crime and child sexual exploitation, right the way through to, uh, to countering disinformation that might be coming from troll farms, which are, is trying to undermine the very fabric of our society, and then preparing ourselves for some of the worst case high-end threats. But we're operating in cyberspace constantly and persistently because this isn't like a a military capability that you keep in reserve you have to be engaged forward all the time to understand and to be able to deter the threat and what are the rules of engagement for defense in the cyber domain well we operate within um, strict ethical and legal frameworks Um, so it's very important to us that we're seen as a responsible cyber power that uh, that we're one of the nations that establish the norms of behavior in cyberspace so that uh, working and living online, as most of us do, is a, is a, is a common good. Uh, you, can, you can do that with confidence. And so what we're trying to do through our behavior is to establish those international norms, be seen as responsible, um, and, uh, uh, and that, very gov- that really does govern our approach. Can you, looking ahead in future, see a situation where a ground war could be triggered in cyberspace? I think it's, it is almost certain that cyberspace will be a feature of any future conflict. It doesn't necessarily follow, as some have um, uh, suggested, that you're going to end up with a 9-11 or a Pearl Harbor in cyberspace. And it doesn't necessarily follow that, uh, that cyberspace will be a trigger for war, although NATO has reserved the right to execute or exercise Article 5 um, in response to cyber attacks. So it depends on the nature of it. But it is clear, I think, that cyber will be an enduring feature in any future military operations in conflict. Um, And we would expect to be able to protect our own forces and remove risks from them in cyberspace. And where are you recruiting from for this force? Well, we're recruiting from within defence. So we've got a pathway um, and an aptitude and assessment process which draws on both the regular forces and we've been it's been very encouraging the number of people who come forward. I need more. So if this is going out to service personnel, please stick your hand up. But also from reservists, and some of our most effective cyber operatives are reservists because they operate in cybersecurity roles uh, in, their, in, the other, in their civilian lives. But we're also encouraging lateral entry, uh, and that's a novel approach. And if you come and work in, uh, in strategic command in a cyber role, then uh, you've got a full career ahead of you in critical area to national security and national defence and we'd really welcome you to come and join us. 
That was General Sir Patrick Sanders speaking to me earlier. Well, with me now is Professor Michael Clark, the former director of the defence think tank, RUSI. Uh, Michael, it's clear from that interview that this work is now fundamental to defence. Yes. Um, and as Patrick Sanders was saying there, I mean, it, it covers both areas. I mean, in the one sense, as he said, I mean, cyberspace is a public good these days. So it's as important to the rest of the world as the sea lanes are to keep freedom of the seas as a fundamental public good that is worth defending. So cyberspace must be seen in that way. And Kira Martin said the same sort of thing, that we have a lot to gain from keeping cyberspace as free and as crime free and as terrorist free as possible. But it also matters because we can't now conceive of warfare, whether it's hybrid warfare or open warfare, except taking place partly in cyberspace. Because in reality, all military competitions pretty well take place in air, land, sea, space and cyber all the time. And those competitions go on even when we are effectively at peace because we live in this hybrid environment where um, our adversaries are trying to undermine our societies on a daily basis. That was very clear. But indeed, if we have to go into some sort of conflict, then we'll need the, our cyber domain because cyber offensives will be all part of it. It's going to be an interesting dilemma to see how that develops. Michael Clark, stay with us. The former Defence Minister, Conservative MP Johnny Mercer, has criticised the government as the most distrustful, awful environment. He left after expressing frustration at what he said is a lack of progress on legislation to protect British veterans who served during the Troubles from prosecution. James Hurst has been following the story. Okay, Johnny Mercer quite clearly is someone who had enough. He told Times Radio he felt like he was the last man in the room committed to delivering what has been repeatedly promised. This is the most distrustful, uh, awful environment uh, I've ever worked in, in government. Almost nobody tells the truth is what I've worked out over the last 36 hours. And, um, you know, so so I I don't think anyone really can get on their high horse about trust and uh, ethics and all the rest of it in in politics, because as far as I'm concerned, most of it is a bit of a cesspit. And his resignation letter is equally damning. In it, he writes, whilst endless plans are promised and solutions mused, veterans are being sectioned and drinking themselves to death simply because the UK government cannot find the moral strength or courage that we asked of them in bringing peace to Northern Ireland. But less than 24 hours later, the Prime Minister tells MPs those protections for Northern Ireland veterans are on the way. Yes, the Prime Minister's official spokesman says this will be announced next month in the Queen's speech, that list legislation for the next session of Parliament. That doesn't actually set a date, though. This is what Boris Johnson told the Commons. We have protected uh, many veterans with the Overseas Operations Bill. There is more to be done, as he rightly says, in the case of uh, veterans uh, in Northern, of, of the Northern Ireland conflict and we will be uh, bringing forward further measures in due course. Now Johnny Mercer says the problem is not a line of that legislation has been written. He essentially has heard it all before and he doesn't trust these assurances. Why has it come to this? It has been promised for a long time. Yes, so the Overseas Operations Bill is complicated. There's a reason it doesn't deal with historic claims from Northern Ireland because those are even more complicated because of the history. Now, the Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy indicates Labour does want this done, but only in the right way. Glad to hear the Minister say at the dispatch box, uh, the government promises legislation on Northern Ireland shortly. We'll look hard at that. 
but when it comes to dealing with the legacy of the past in Northern Ireland, we remain committed to the only way forward, which must be based on the Good Friday Agreement, and in particular on the broad consensus reached at Stormont House with victims at its heart. And there are questions about whether this is actually something Westminster, the UK Parliament, can deal with. Dr Ronan Cormacane from the Bingham Centre for the Rule of Law told me this is actually a matter for Stormont. It is for the Northern Ireland Assembly to decide what the speed limits are for Northern Ireland, what the drunk driving rules are for Northern Ireland, and also what the rules are in relation to prosecutions for soldiers for events which took place in Northern Ireland. So can Boris Johnson actually deliver? In strict theory, he could do that, but it would really undermine the entire edifice of devolution. And more pertinently, it would probably strike at the heart of the Northern Ireland peace process if one party decided to unilaterally make changes. Okay, we will no doubt hear much more on this from Johnny Mercer, but his contributions will now be from the back benches. His replacement as Veterans Minister is Leo Doherty, a former captain in the Scots Guards. And as he comes in, he has to navigate the Overseas Operations Bill through what should be its very final stages in Parliament. James Hurst, thank you. Now, there was a stark warning to the West in President Putin's 17th State of the Nation address. We really do not want to burn bridges, but if someone perceives our good intentions as indifference or weakness and himself intends to finally burn or even blow up these bridges, then he should know that Russia's response will be asymmetrical, quick and tough. The warning came amid heightened tension with the West over Ukraine and the jailed Putin critic Alexei Navalny, who is on hunger strike. So Tony Brenton is a former ambassador to Moscow and he joins me now along with Professor Michael Clark. Um, so Tony, what do you think Vladimir Putin was hoping to achieve by this speech? I, well, I listened to the whole of the speech and the first point I want to make is that two-thirds of it were about exactly the same things as we were about in the UK. They were about the virus, they were about um, getting people vaccinated, they were about dealing with the aftermath, uh, the economic aftermath of the, of the pandemic. And I think it's rather sad that all of the British press coverage that I've seen today has focused on the confrontational bit, which was frankly 10 minutes at the end. Nevertheless, it was pretty forceful. Uh, clearly, the reason it was forceful is because the Russians see themselves as dealing with a, a belligerent President Biden, a man who has now called uh, Putin a killer and has launched a round of sanctions against Russia. And they've decided to show the Americans that there are real costs to aggravating the Russians beyond a certain point, which is why we're now looking at more than 100,000 Russian troops sitting on the borders of Ukraine. Mr. Putin denies that the troop build-up near Ukraine's border is an invasion force, but he spoke of dire consequences if the West crossed what he called a red line. What do you think he's trying to achieve? Well, I mean, for the moment, the, the, the West has actually, um, Biden looked, seems to be looking for an off-ramp with his offer of a summit. Uh, for the moment, what we've heard, we've had from the Biden administration, apart from the sanctions, has been noise. But Putin wants to uh, deter irreversible actions by the West. For example, if the West decided to invite Ukraine to become a member of NATO, I am pretty sure that at that point the Russians would invade. Michael Clark, what, what do you think? Do you think these actions will be enough to dissuade Ukraine from moving closer to NATO membership? Yeah, I think Sir Tony is absolutely right that uh, Ukraine is as near to NATO as I think it is going to get in the long foreseeable future. 
because it's a member of the what, what NATO established in 2014, the Partnership Interoperability Initiative. And there are uh, 28, 29 states in that. And six of them, including Ukraine, you know, Ukraine, Georgia, and Finland, and Sweden, uh, Jordan, Australia, have been given this what they call enhanced opportunity status. So they've been put into a sort of a Premier League. But this is the nearest they will get to NATO, believe me. Um, that, and that, mean, that can mean whatever you want it to mean, the enhanced opportunity partnerships. So NATO could up upgrade that partnership. They could do more with Ukraine or they could do less with Ukraine. But changing Ukraine's status, I think, is simply not on the cards for exactly the reasons that Satoni mentioned. Uh, and Satoni, when we turn to the treatment of Alexei Navalny, we saw arrests of some of his supporters. Clearly, Putin hopes to extinguish protests as quickly as possible. Yes, and I think they're probably rather heartened by what happened yesterday, which was a reduction from the actually not very large size of the protests which took place in January. It's interesting looking at the Russian treatment of Navalny, whom for a long time they just dismissed as an irritant. Um, it became clear that he constituted more than an irritant, largely because he's a very, and I know Navalny personally, he's a, mm. a very effective, very brave man who wants a better Russia. I have total sympathy with him. But the Russian government, the regime, um, first of all, is determined that this is an entirely internal affair and they're not going to let the West interfere with that. Uh, and, and secondly, they are determined that Navalny will not get close to any sort of attempt to take power in, in Russia. And they're, they're achieving that as well. The brutal fact is that 60 or 70 percent of the Russian population, OK, 20 percent or so like Navalny, like, like what he's offering. But the vast majority of Russians, when asked, prefer Putin to remain as their president. Uh, and Michael, how would you characterise the West's response so far to his imprisonment? Well, I think most Western leaders understand they have to be very, very careful with this because the Kremlin wants now to um, cast Navalny as, as, either, as a dupe of the West or as a, a figure of Western power, somebody who's getting support from the West, who's undermining Russia from outside. So they don't want to do anything which would give credence to that idea. They know that Navalny is not a Western agent. He's not there pushing a Western agenda. And so all they can do really is what they are doing, which is to keep reporting it keep reporting the story on the assumption that somehow it does circulate back into Russian society and as it were giving it the, the their best wishes but there isn't much that the West can do and if they ever seem to 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 look as if they're tangibly helping Navalny then it would destroy the credibility that he has among those Russians who like him uh, want a, a less corrupt and better Russia. Professor Michael Clark and Sir Tony Brenton thank you very much for joining us today. As concern mounts around the long-term impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the mental health of frontline healthcare workers, a military charity is urging more support for them and their families. As Lisa Hartle reports, Help for Heroes has updated its free online package of support, Lessons from the Battlefield, to include self-care guides for loved ones, not just veterans, and healthcare workers. Things will catch you out sometimes when you don't expect it. Like, I remember there was something on the news and it was about like a minute silence or something for healthcare workers that had died during the pandemic and we were in the unfortunate situation in our IT department where we treated one of our own nurses who passed away and we sort of formed a guard of honour as his body was taken from ITU to morgue and I hope I never have to do that again in my career. It was really, really difficult. 
Dr. Helen Blamey, like thousands of medical staff throughout the pandemic, have been and continue to deal with traumatic experiences. Understanding the long-term impact this can have, Help for Heroes is providing advice in the form of an online guide, not just for medical workers, but also their family members. One of the authors of the guide, which draws on the experiences of treating wounded service personnel, is veteran Andrew Taylor. It was going along the way of the, some of the emotions that our frontline NHS staff volunteers, you know, um, care workers might fear or face every day that are similar to what you'd experience in the military, emotion-wise. So they'd have that adrenaline rush of going in to work, anxiety. So we looked at the emotional resilience that work that veterans have done and identified and put that out in the way of a field care guide to the wider NHS and care volunteer community. And now that's been sort of looked at again to encompass families of those key workers and NHS frontline workers. Vicky McCauley's dad served in the RAF and has PTSD. She's helped create the family section of the guide, drawing on her own experience on how to support a family member while also looking after yourself. Acknowledge that if, if you have someone in your family who is working in the military or likewise, if you if you have someone in your family that's working in the NHS or doing another, you know, high risk, high stress job, then you are part of that world too. And so I think it's really important that you develop a habit of looking after you as well as you look after your person. And it's the hardest thing to do because there's a guilt attached to it, I think, for a lot of people. And there was for us, you know, well, actually, there's a there's a sense of, well, I'm not the one out there, you know, dealing with this. So I shouldn't feel I, sh- I don't have a right to feel stressed or a right to feel worried. You know, they're going through this really difficult thing and I just need to be strong. And da, da, da. But actually, it's difficult. Lessons from the battlefield can be found on the Help for Heroes website. Lisa Hartle there with that report. And that's it from me, Kate Chabot, and all my guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.